0: This is Live from the Table, the official podcast of New York's world-famous Comedy Cellar, coming at you on Sirius XM 99, Raw Dog, and the Laugh Button Podcast Network. Dan Natterman here. I'm with Perry L. Ashenbrand, the producer of the show, and of course, Noam Dorman, the owner of the world-famous Comedy Seller. We have Alan Dershowitz who will be joining us in about 20 minutes. I'm not exactly sure what Noam wants to talk to him about because I sent him about four emails asking, but he didn't respond them i'm gonna let you i'm gonna let
1: you handle the first questions dad i'm gonna give you first crack of dirt because you, you were you i mean i'm happy to have him on. i love dirt but you you were anxiously t- asking for him so i'm gonna let you i'm gonna let you run out the time and then i'll add whatever i want to add
0: well i was anxious mostly because i thought uh you, you know he'd be interesting for for you to talk to yeah for
1: all of us i mean we have one here about israel about uh, cancel culture about censorship about um chauvin about um um well, whatever else. Go ahead.
0: So well, in any we'll, case, but no more Chauvin. I mean, enough with Chauvin. We beat well, I just him want to, to hear death. a little bit about Chauvin. As, we let's as, as to said the...
2: that last time and then we wound up having a whole nother show about him.
1: Well, you know, it's it is it is an interesting issue, but I, I want to hear how how he. um What do I say about Chauvin as it pertains to his general um feeling that the left has turned away from civil liberties? So go ahead.
0: Anyway, um, so I did want to talk briefly about uh, we had a Hall of Fame, a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee at the Comedy Cellar just a couple of nights ago on Monday night. Monday night, they do music. They used to do it on Friday, pre-pandemic. Now, every Monday at the Olive Tree Cafe, which is the restaurant above the Comedy Cellar. Noam and his merry band of musician friends do treat us to two or three hours of some of the best hits from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2 k and Donald Fagan was there with his friend. I listened to a lot of serious uh, XM uh, radio, so I, I pick up the lingo.
2: It's amazing.
0: Um, Donald Fagan, the uh, lead singer of Steely Dan, keyboard player from Steely Dan, was here with Fred Kaplan, who's an old friend of Noam's. And uh, they listened to the music and they also came to see the show. So first, Noam, I want to ask if 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 uh, if you talked to Donald Fagan and if he had any words to say about you, you and the musicians that were performing.
1: Well, I, I did speak to him. He, he of course, complimented us, but um, but that's, you know, could have just been diplomatic. But uh, I got I heard afterwards from Fred Kaplan that he says, those guys are really good. And he, he asked um, if we had any original material. He was interested to hear it. So
0: he also came down to see the show. And, and I was on that show. And during my set, he was in the back. So it was a little dark and hard to see. But every time I looked over to him it seemed to me as best I could tell that he was absolutely stone-faced. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and, he's, uh, he's stone-faced, but he's a stone-faced kind of guy even on stage a little bit.
0: Well, and also, so I said, well, I don't know if he's enjoying this. It could be me, he maybe he doesn't like stand-up in general. But after the show, Fred Kaplan came over and 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 with uh Donald Fagan and Fred just said to me, "Hey, Dan, good job." and did not introduce me to Donald Fagan nor did Donald Fagan seem to have any interest in saying hello so i take that as a bad sign insofar as donald fagan's appreciation of my act not that it much matters did you do well i did very well yeah and i'm sure he
1: thought you were objectively
0: objectively speaking i did well
1: i'm sure he thought you were funny no he he was a little listen it's it's hard for those guys they're super famous they know everybody's watching them to see their reaction so it,
0: it it puts them ill at ease
2: how old is he now? He's
0: 73, but he's not like he's famous, but I, and yet I don't think many people recognize
2: him. I mean, I would have no,
1: everybody, idea. so many people I recognized him. him. It was crazy. Called? The musicians are just regular
0: folks, comedians, musicians,
1: people.
2: I would I mean, have no idea. I mean, he's was. a
0: guy that really does not look like a star. Of, mm-hmm. of all the, he, I mean, of all the people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he looks like the least rock and roll uh, of all of them.
1: First of all, among musicians, he he packs a wallop. I mean, this guy is highly respected oh, uh, sure. by musicians, uh, but and not just and across genres. Like you know, black people respect him, jazz musicians respect him, pop musicians respect him. It's it's a very unique place that he has in music.
0: Well, yeah, I have no doubt about that. I'm just saying the general public, I don't know if like Mick Jagger walks in and it would be like, Oh my god, I mean, the people would you know, would be you hear audible gasping. But I I mean I don't think that Donald Fagan has that kind of reaction on the average. On no the no average Jew, shirt. no Jew does. Yeah, though. you're right. He's too <laughs> Jewish. Alan Dershowitz. has. <laughs> Alan Dershowitz has
2: that well, kind Paul of
0: Simon reaction. does it somewhat. Dylan, <laughs> I Eddie
2: Kravitz uh, does. He's a Jew. Well, because
0: he's half black. And so that gives him a lot more coolness. No, but Dylan, uh, Dylan, Dylan is Dylan's got to be our poster. Dylan, Dylan d- well, d- might invoke that kind of reaction. Yeah.
1: I mean, not, not um, in my home, not, not, not with my father. He, he didn't feel that way. But, um, yeah, to the rest of the world.
0: Um, Do we want to talk about uh, Hunter Biden briefly? Well, what about this Jeff Singer thing? Well, because we're, we were going to we're talk about that next week with Mayron, but, but if you want to if you want to broach the subject and we'll go in further in depth next week, Jeff Singer is a long time. He used to be my um, agent, by the way. He was at Abrams Artist. Um, then he became the booker of the Montreal Comedy Festival. And then he resigned recently because I don't know the full story. Apparently, he used the N word. He was quoting somebody and they told I think this happened at the stand or at Gotham, wherever it happened. He was quoting somebody saying, "So and so said the n word," but he actually used the word, and they said, "Jeff, please don't say that." So they, you know, they gave him one free pass, and then apparently, from what I hear, he continued to say it, like I guess in a joking way, like what I can't say. Mm? What are you talking about? I should be able to say. Mm. I guess he was trying to be funny or provocative, whatever. Mayron went on Facebook or on Twitter, and and told the story, and then a bunch of other comics, and not a bunch, a few. Came forward and said, well, Jeff was, you know, he was uh, rude to me or he told me, you know, a lot of female comics said that he said things that were they felt were sexist. Like, you know, you should wear you shouldn't wear boots with that skirt, you know, (laughs) uh, things of that nature that, you know, that he booked comics based uh, female comics based on their physical appearance, whatever. So
1: I'm I'm laughing not because I'm laughing at the at the outrageous Arrogance of him to say such things. I'm not laughing that. I think
0: they they shouldn't complain. About. Like, who did guys? Was that really a thing? The boots and the skirt, or were you? Well, that's what I read up? on Twitter. Yeah, but I'm happy to hear Jeff Singer's defense if he has one. If he's, we get to... him on.
2: Well, I, I can try to. I can. Ask you can it. try.
0: My sense is that he probably is in hiding somewhere. Well, I mean, they're calling this. Happy to have him on. My question
1: is, um, was he known to give these kind of, uh, you know? pontificating edicts of of style and criticism uh, to all comedians or just to female comedians because you know it, it is different if he if he says dumb things to every comic then it makes it look less bad when he says it just to a woman but if he just if he just feels open season on women um you know that's Well
0: I'd also like to know he booked the new faces which you know the uh, I don't know if he he didn't book everything at the festival I don't think maybe he did but, we, you know, it would also be interesting to see who he booked over the years. I mean, was it was it all, you know, young, skinny girls, you know, that are conventionally attractive? I mean, I, I'd want to see that data before I you know, pronounced that he was necessarily sexist, maybe in word. But but was he also sexist, sexist indeed, as well as word and and, and that was has, relevant. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. That would be relevant to my analysis of, of Jeff Singer. But in any case, he's resigned and he's no longer the booker there. But who
1: has such cojones and such arrogance that they they quote the N-word to some black people? And this is in 2021. This isn't, you know, a time when you could. Plead ignorance as to whether you thought it was okay to quote, but you're not supposed to do that now, but okay. So, so you do it because you think maybe you're close enough or whatever it is and you, and you can have this conversation. And they say to you, please don't do that. It disturbs me. And you dig in and you argue with them and you use it again and again. That is just, I mean,
0: that's, yeah, that, I I mean, it's outrageous but again, he's not here, and we're happy to hear from him if he has a different side to the story. Well, he resigned and apologized. So, yeah, so he probably, that's probably what happened relatively accurately. Uh, but uh, yes, I there's no explain, unless, I mean, if he was blind drunk, that would at least be an explanation, if not an excuse, uh, you know, and maybe, but, but, but yes, I agree. That's outrageous. And um, I mean, I've known him for, I've known him. He, he, he was originally the way he started. At least when I met him, he was Dave Becky's from Dave. Becky was also embroiled in some controversy. But in any case, he was Dave Becky's assistant like 25 years ago. That's when I first met him. I uh, I, I think I had like a meeting with Dave Becky uh, briefly, you know, to talk about working together, which never happened. But in any case, that's how he started. Then he was an agent at Abrams Artists. He was my agent at Abrams Artists. Uh, and then I don't know what he then I think he booked Jimmy Fallon for a brief period of time as well. So now I want to talk to Meron. Now,
1: Mayron is um, uh, wonderful. And he, you know, so so this morphed into Guy Branham on Twitter, once again, bashing the comedy seller for not being uh, sufficiently open to gays or something. You know? And Meron tore him. A new asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, Mayron just ripped him apart. God bless Mayron for defending us. Because, because it, it was absurd. There was one show that had uh, he um,
0: relate he related the Jeff Singer incident to, to the comedy seller. Uh, Guy Branham did. No,
1: but somehow Guy Branham brought it back around. And and um I, I have I have I screenshotted it somewhere. But so Mayron's like, listen, we had a show with um uh, uh Sam J, Paris She, Mayron all on the same show and godfrey you know like so like four out of six of the acts were uh were gay or black or both and he's like what are you talking about he says he sits at the table every day but this guy guy Branham, won't give it up this guy is a real creep all right i mean there's enough of this guy already I've, I've done everything i can to be nice to him after the podcast i invited him to go on stage i um I, I invited him to go who on. Is with,
2: he? Who is this guy? I don't know I, I invited the, him
1: to go on. He's a guy who wrote an article in Vulture.com saying that the comedy seller didn't allow gay and trans at the table. And we were the, the boys club that, that was responsible for Louis C.K. and the the, the sexist,
0: homophobic...
2: And so then you and so he said all this, and then you invited him. We did the cellar. podcast
0: with him, and I guess it was probably him. one of our best episodes.
2: Not that was, before yeah, and had, we had
0: like we had all the
1: gay comics that have traditionally worked at the comedy at, at the comedy cellar there to tell him, no, actually, the comedy cellar was the only place that was always open to gays and always had gays performing there. And and you, you've, and he admitted he'd never been to the comedy cellar before when he wrote the article, he had no knowledge of anything, he, but.
2: I thought we settled it. And then afterwards, I'm I- really sorry to interrupt. You Noam. I apologize. I think Alan Dershowitz is here.
0: Okay. Well, we'll have Mehran on. I ap- well, let me just finish what I said. Okay.
2: Well, I mean, I'm, we said I
0: don't, I don't, seven, I don't, eight,
2: I don't eight, want eight, him to leave and think that,
0: um, you, you have what you can message him. Okay. It's okay. Well, we'll have Mehran on next week. We'll get to the bottom. We will get into this the- introduction. Yes, of course. I, I don't. I, I I can do it from memory. Alan Dershowitz. Where where is he? he's not on screen? There he is. <laughs> Alan Hi, Dershowitz. Tiny. <laughs> Alan Dershowitz, who is no stranger to the comedy seller. He's been to a couple of our debates. Uh, anyway, Alan Dershowitz is here. I mean, I don't need to introduce him because he's yes, he needs so well. known, but I'll do it anyway. He was a professor at Harvard Law for over forty years. He's written several best-selling books, including *Chutzpah: uh, Reversal of Fortune*, which was made into a movie. Uh, which I saw when I was in college at the theater in uh, Philadelphia and enjoyed it very much. Um, he wrote the case for peace, the case for Israel, which Noam's father bought a stack of them and handed it out to everybody. Um, and most recently his book, uh, "Periel." Oh, brother guys. What's it? What's the name of his most
3: recent, what's the name of his most recent book professor? It's called the case against the new censorship. Hey big corporations big tech universities and progressives uh, it's, a, okay. it's, it's a pleasure to have you on our
1: show sir and i know i know uh, we all have questions for you but dan i'm going to let you go first well Thank first
0: you. of all yes first of all uh, welcome once again you've been here before you were at a couple of our debates
3: yeah and, and we're planning and i think we're planning another one uh, we're going to try to have another one on uh, the middle east and peace and all of that i'm looking forward to it yes, i have nice. to apologize I was eating a chocolate bar tonight and it cracked one of my teeth. So I look like I just got out of a bar fight, but uh, it was an innocent chocolate bar, not a bar
0: fight. I think well, it gives you a kind of machismo that uh, that is winning. I, I, I think. Mm-hmm. I think <clears throat> well, verbal sparring, you're known for bar fighting less so. <laughs> but I can't even see from where I'm sitting that there's a, an issue there, a dental issue of any kind. Have you ever I just wanted to ask you also if you've ever been to the actual comedy cellar, if you've ever seen a comedy show here.
3: Of course. Of course, I have. I participated in at least one debate there. I've been to two or three uh, comedy events. I love stand up comedy. Um, You know, had I not been a law professor, who knows? Um, You know, uh, Woody Allen and I grew up just a few blocks away from each other and we're uh, almost the same age. And Larry David. a lot of good comics uh, came out of uh, Brooklyn in the 1940s and 50s. So, you know, I have I have the heritage. I just don't have the great sense of humor that they have.
0: <laughs> well, there is a there is some overlap. Well, you might have had you cultivated it. Who knows? But there is some overlap between law and comedy. I have a law degree. Uh, the late Greg Giraldo had had a law degree. Um, there are several other comics, I believe, Mike Royce, not a Mike Royce, Mike Sweeney.
3: But now, right. no comic ha- no comic dares to go to a university. If they go to a university, they're going to get canceled, they're going to get yelled at. I used to sprinkle my classes in criminal law with humor uh, all the time. Uh, today, you can't do that. I'll give you an example. Once in class, a student, we were talking about affirmative action. And in Canada, to be the beneficiary of affirmative action, You have to be a visible minority, a visible minority. So a student, Professor Dershowitz, are Jews a visible minority? I said, no, we're an audible minority. (laughs) and uh, I got complaints. You know, that's a stereotype. Of course, it's a stereotype. All ethnic humor is a stereotype. All Jewish jokes are based on stereotypes. And, uh, you know, if you want humor, you have to have a little bit of stereotyping.
0: I must say that's a pretty good joke, I think. (laughs) <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Oh, I I give that. Um, that, that and when, when did you do that? What year was that that you that you oh, got in trouble you, for
3: that? About 10 years ago, probably 10, 10 years ago. ago. Okay. You know, I taught at Harvard for 50 years. The first 45, there wasn't this problem. But then I would say the last five years and now I've been retired about five, the problem has gotten greater. Um, I just wrote an article about how robots don't have a sense of humor. You know, robots now censor on the major uh, uh, high-tech networks, their robotic censorship. And there were some cases where cartoons didn't make it through because the robot didn't understand the difference between advocating uh, racism or advocating violence and mocking the advocacy of racism and violence. So, you know, we have robots now telling us what humor is, And um, it's 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 pretty dangerous. And so this is the new
0: censorship you talk about in your in your book.
3: Yeah, because the old censorship was by the government. I never lost a case against the government. We always won. I represented hair. I represented I am curious yellow. I represented the Pentagon Papers. I represented Deep Throat represented, you know, everybody. We always won because the First Amendment was on our side. But the private censors, the big tech censors, the First Amendment is on their side. They can pick and choose who they censor and who they don't censor. And we don't have a legal leg to stand on. That's why we have to be fighting back in the court of public opinion rather than in the courts of law. So you, you uh, having thought it through, I'm sure, um,
1: and looked for any angle, you see no legal recourse against big
3: tech in their ability to censor however they want. Oh, yeah, there is some legal recourse, but the legal recourse may be worse than the problem. I mean, the legal recourse would include antitrust laws, would include trying to call them common carriers. You know, the telegraph company, for example, can't say we only accept Republican telegraphs, not Democrat telegraphs. They're open to everybody. So Justice Thomas has said maybe they're a common carrier. I think those are problematic as well. Uh, There's this Section 230 that gives the big tech exemption from all kinds of defamation suits on the ground that they're just a platform. And of course, logically, if you're just a platform, you can't be held responsible for what people put on you if you don't pick and choose. But if you become a publisher, if you're no longer a platform, if you're like the comedy club, the comedy club picks and chooses which comedians it's going to have on. And if you have on a comedian who commits all kinds of defamatory acts, you're not exempt. But the big tech are exempt, and so there's a movement now to restrict that, to give big tech a choice. Look, you want to be a platform, fine, then you can't censor, you get the exemption. But if you want to censor then you're no longer a platform, you're a publisher, and you're covered by the same rules that cover the Comedy Club, the New York Times, and CNN. What, what do you and think, your, wait, I'm sorry, so what's your position on that? You, you, uh, you I think it's keep- a good idea to limit Section 230 to real platforms. Um, There are a number of new platforms now that don't censor, and they should get the benefit of that. But if, you know, Facebook is having the Supreme Court of Facebook deciding what can be put on and what can't be put on, here's the problem. When you tell the readers of Facebook that they can't hear a debate between Alan Dershowitz and Robert Kennedy, we had a debate about whether vaccination should be compulsory. I'm in favor of compulsory vaccinations, if necessary. Bobby Kennedy is against it. It was a very good debate. YouTube took it down, saying, we don't want you to hear both sides of that debate. You know, if if you can do that, uh, then I don't think you should get the exemption. If you can pick and choose who you should put on. Now, you know, if you had a debate, I mean, I can imagine you having a debate at the comedy uh, 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 cellar about, you know, compelled vaccinations. It would be a very interesting debate, uh, but nobody should censor that.
0: Go ahead, Dan. I'm sorry. No, so so I mean, there's a difference that a lot of people don't seem to understand when we get into debates about free speech on Twitter and and mostly Twitter, I guess it is, gotcha. uh, and Facebook, I guess, and Insta- Instagram is more people, you know, sh- shaking their butts, and it, it's it's yeah. it's less serious. Generally, it's in, in Twitter. But in any case, you know, people make the argument. Well, um, the First Amendment doesn't apply because it's not the government. That's very sure. true. But but we're not talking about the First Amendment as a law. We're talking about it as a concept. And the question is, is what is best for the society?
3: I agree with you. I talk about the First Amendment culture, freedom of speech, culture, the marketplace of ideas Um, and, uh, you know, first they come after the comedians. That's always been the case. First, they come after the comedians because the comedians are the ones who are at the forefront of provocation. They did that in Nazi Germany. They did that in communism. They did that in Castro's Cuba. The first, they come after the comedians. Second, they come after the lawyers, which is interesting. Um, and, um, and that's why I think it's so important that we preserve the culture of freedom of speech, even if the First Amendment doesn't apply. And that's why, you know, the comedy cellar and other institutions like yours, are so important because the government can't tell you what to do.
0: Well, but but the truth of the matter is, is, you know, we we we. um, You know, we're not Noam who's the owner, he does not censor us. He does not tell us, don't say this, don't say that. But the audience is there to to in to impose their will on us. And if they are not laughing, uh, you know, because ultimately it's about getting laughter. Of course. So if they're not laughing, if they're uncomfortable, if they're, you know, that's not going censorship,
1: to... Dan, that's, that's it's not, it's not part.
0: censorship. But the, but the point is, 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 is this, is the notion that a comedy club is just all kinds of ideas that are flowing and things that you'll, you just won't hear anywhere else. I, I think that's somewhat exaggerated. I... Well,
3: it depends on the time. I remember when the comedy clubs had people like Mark Saul. And um, what's the name of the guy who eventually died of heroin overdose? Um, Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce. They weren't funny. Uh, you know, you had to have an acquired taste for them. Certainly, I remember coming and listening to Lenny Bruce read from the transcript of his trial. And, you know, every so often you'd get a snicker, but it wasn't funny. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are comedians who really, you know, I, I would... Uh, are, are, are not, uh, their major contribution is not getting a laugh. It's right. making a point. It's making a point through comedy that maybe you don't get the joke until you get home that night. Um, and, you know, there are some late night comics now who are politicians and, you know, make, you know railing against Israel, railing against America, railing against um, many, many other values. And it's not funny. But people watch them, and a lot of people get their news today through late-night comics. And so comedy transcends just the ha-ha laugh. Well, and, I, I mean, Dan is kind of implying something that I don't agree with, which is I think the audiences
1: are quite open to hearing people tell jokes from all points of view, yeah. m- much more than people might suspect if they think that, you know, woke culture has taken over everything. And there's comedians like Andrew Schultz. Professor, I don't know if you're familiar with these guys, but, yeah. they're, you know, they're making – big careers for themselves by talking about the things they're not supposed to talk about. And they're quite acceptable <laughs> and to our audience. Professor, but it's not just the culture of the First Amendment, is it? There used to be a spirit of the entire Bill of Rights, which was kind of like yeah, transferred yeah. as a social norm through everything we did, even as a boss. The way I would treat my employees was informed by, I, I had much more latitude, but I still was always informed by the kind of "innocent or proven guilty of and, and, and due process and 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 I'm sure there's other examples, and, and we've kind of turned away from the spirit of the entire
3: Bill of Rights through our societies, correct? I think that's right, and I think seeing everything today through racial terms, critical racial theory, and the people who are announcing critical racial theories say, essentially, we don't have a sense of humor, we don't believe in liberal values, we don't believe in, you know, the, 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 the old joke, uh, how, many, how many feminists does it take to change a light bulb? That isn't funny. Well, that is funny, actually. Um, and, and uh, you know, the idea that we're being told by critical race theory that we can't laugh, that you can laugh at certain jokes if you're black, but you can't even think about laughing at them if you're white. Um, I, I hope you're right that there are audiences out there that are prepared to laugh at anything that's, that's funny and prepared to give a pass. Even if it's not funny, if you tried, if you tried hard, and you made an effort, and uh, you know, it, if it didn't horribly, horribly uh, insult people on racial or gender grounds, um, look, there are limits. Uh, when when President Trump mocked somebody who was disabled, for me, that went beyond my limits of any kind of acceptable uh, speech, and I wouldn't accept a comedian um, mocking somebody for a disability either, but. You know, that should be self-censorship. That should be something that you impose on yourself. Today, if somebody tried to mock somebody at in the cellar, they'd be booed. Um, and that's the ultimate. The ultimate uh, uh, response is the boo or the walkout.
1: Now, and, 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 you know, so we had our situation with Louis C.K. I don't know if you followed it. where Of we're, course, not. very much and, so. Yep. But what was interesting about that is, um, despite the fact that I had threats against me and against my business and even... Uh, kind of veiled threats against my children and horrible articles written about me and all kinds of stuff business did not um suffer one bit which no. made me begin to think although i didn't have this impression going into it i was scared that you know i don't really know how many people are really on board with this is kind of a wizard of oz phenomenon going on with twitter where you see this big guy but you don't know is there just one
3: small group of people behind the curtain. Do you have a feel well, for it? Some of that. Look, I spoke for years at the 92nd Street Y. I was the second most popular speaker in the history of the 92nd Street Y. Only Ellie Wiesel, more. I spoke probably 30 times and I packed the audience every time. Then I was accused of having sex with a woman I never met and never heard of, proved conclusively beyond any doubt by her own emails and her own lawyers and her own tape recordings that she never met me. And the 92nd Street Y canceled me. They said, we know you didn't do it. We know there's nothing to it. But there are six or seven people who would be offended. And they're on our board. So I said to them, yeah, but there are a thousand people who want to hear me. There are six people who don't want to hear me. Why are you canceling me? Well, the six people who don't want to hear you are going to make trouble. Yes. So that's the way it works. That's the way McCarthyism works. I don't think McCarthyism was that popular with the general audience. I don't think the people out there cared about you know the front, that uh, uh, there were people who had may have been communists in the 1930s uh, who were writing brilliant uh, stuff, Dalton Trumbo and others, but McCarthy cared and he threatened the networks and he threatened the television studios and the movie studios. And a, a small number of people brought about McCarthyism. And I think you may be right. You may be onto something. That it's not a large number of people. For example, if you were to invite Woody Allen to come down and do an evening of stand-up, it would pack the place. People would boo. People would be outside. People would be protesting. But everybody would want to hear him. He's, you know, he's the greatest stand-up comic of our generation.
1: Yeah. Well, that I don't know if I, even though I have the courage to 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 bring Woody Allen there, but yeah, but I but I do I do resent the fact that um, that because it, it goes. How do I put this? It went beyond just the idea that people disapprove. People actually felt the right to say that, OK, if you have a, a a willing performer and a willing audience that wants to see him, this is still our business. We still have the right to say you shouldn't be doing this. And that I couldn't understand. I agree all. with
3: you. If you can protest. You can stand outside. You can come in and boo uh, or not laugh. But the one thing you can't do is stopping from listening. I just wrote an article this this week. I'm publishing it in a new book that I have, um, by the way, 47 books, not just 30. 47 books, and 47, I wrote it yeah. 50 years, not 40 years. So let's get it straight.
0: So, uh, <laughs> I think you know, I said over 40 years.
3: Over, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And, you know, it's just, it's just what's going on today is so, so dangerous. And I wrote an article saying, The First Amendment has two elements. We forget about that. The right of the speaker to speak. Yeah, everybody knows that. But the right of the listener to listen or the viewer to view, the right of the audience is very important. And when you cancel somebody, you're not only canceling them, you're denying the audience the right to read their book. Look at what happened now with Philip Roth. Philip Roth is a great writer. Uh, Look, the greatest, the greatest book review title ever done was the New York Times Review of Portnoy's Complaint. Do you remember what the title was? No. The Gripes of Roth. <laughs> it was fantastic. Look, Philip Roth is was fantastic. And somebody wrote a biography. Of it. And uh, But the guy who wrote the biography was accused. And so uh, Norton and Company, I think it was, withdrew the biography. So I can't read a biography now of Philip Roth. I want to read it. I wanted to read Woody Allen's biography. Fortunately, when one of the companies withdrew it, another company published it. And it's very funny. Uh, And I'm glad I had a chance to read it. Doesn't mean I have to agree with everything that Woody Allen has said or done in his lifetime. But I don't agree with everything Dostoevsky has done in his lifetime. Dostoevsky was a virulent anti-Semite. He wrote an article called The Jewish Question, in which he accused the Jews of, you know, trying to control the world. Oh, I mean, it could have appeared in, 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 in one of Goebbels' writings, but I still love Dostoevsky. So, you know, there are no heroes. Everybody has clay feet. Uh, Nelson well, Mandela was- of terrorism. Mahatma Gandhi was a racist when he lived in South Africa. Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. Abraham Lincoln, when he won the Lincoln-Douglas debate, called for the blacks to be freed so they could be sent back to Africa. You know, there are no heroes. There are no perfect people. So let's stop demanding perfection
0: of our people. If, if you were a businessman, you were the owner of the, the company that was going to publish Woody Allen's book, or if you were Netflix and you had to make a decision whether to uh, publish a book or air a special that you thought was going to be bad for business. Um, I mean, can you blame these companies for doing what they think is in their best interest, even if it's not in the best interest of society The censor, it's in their best interest as businessmen, not to- well, not-
3: I, I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong from the point of view of business. I think they're making short-term business decisions, not long-term business decisions. I think it's from a long-term point of view, it's much better for a publisher to have a reputation as being somebody who will publish things they disagree with, the Voltaire approach. I disagree with what you're saying, but I will defend to the death your right to publish it. You know, there are limits. Obviously, you don't publish manuals about how to make an atomic bomb or how to you know, do things uh, that are clearly illegal. But within the parameters of what's acceptable, I think publishers shouldn't be subject to the veto of their employers. And when Simon & Schuster was thinking of not publishing the book by former vice president, they weren't doing it on business grounds. They were doing it because some of their editors didn't want to be associated with any book that came out of the Trump administration. So, um, you know, and it, censorship today is being used against the right. Yesterday, it was used against the left. When I was in college, I was the president of the student government of Brooklyn College, and I hated communism, but I defended the rights of communists. And... Um, and, and, and I always stood up for the rights of, I defended the rights of Nazis to march through Skokie, even though Nazis murdered many of my relatives. That's what free speech is about. It's not free speech for me, but not for thee, it's free speech for everybody. Yeah, I mean, as an employer, because as an employer, it would be very helpful to me
1: as an employer, if they would just make it illegal for me to fire somebody based on their political points of view. Uh, it would be such a, because, you know, I had, I remember years ago, I had a musician who was uh, wearing a Farrakhan, proudly wearing a Farrakhan t shirt. Yeah, yeah. Right at the time when he was saying all these uh, really yeah. the, his greatest hits about the Jews. And I chose to just let it go. What am I going to do? But I, if, I, if, I re- if I fired him for that, I'd be a villain. On the other hand, if I didn't fire somebody who wore a mirror image white guy's T-shirt, I'd be a villain for that, too. I prefer to say, listen, you are you guys just do your jobs. I don't care what you believe in. I, I agree with you. And I've
3: told all universities to do that. Take the taxi cab approach to freedom of speech. First guy who hails the cab gets in the cab. They can't refuse to take you where you want to go. Um, and that's the way it should be at universities. I call it the circle of civility. If yes. you're going to say... You can't have speech on one side. You have to say it on the other. Look at what happened recently where a woman, a black woman psychiatrist gave a lecture at the Yale Child Studies Center. And she said what she really fantasizes about is taking a gun and and blowing up the head of white people because white people are. And then she went and said all kinds of things about white people, which if somebody ever said about black people, you know, they would never be allowed to speak. But Yale has a different standard for what a black person could say about a white person from what a white person could say about a black person. Well, maybe that has to be tolerated for a while. Uh, Obviously, we can tell jokes. Women can tell jokes stereotyping men more easily than a man can tell a joke stereotyping women. And there's a little room for affirmative action kind of to make up for all the years in which there was such discrimination based on gender and based on race. But there comes a time when real equality, Martin Luther King type equality, I dream at a time when my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's what I hope
1: for. What, what bothers me about that and all of that is that just as um, on an intellectual basis, these people are normalizing everything which they claim to despise. Forget about whether they can get away with it. We allow it. We don't allow it. How can you devote your life to uh, fighting racism and then just embrace the very notions of collective guilt and judging people on the color of their skin and immutable characteristics without even being embarrassed about it? How how are they not
3: laughed out of court? Like what's going on? Well, they not only are not laughed out of court, they teach courses on it, critical race theory, which says basically you (laughs) should judge people by the color of their skin. That identity is everything. That white people have to shut up. They've spoken too long. They have too much privilege. Listen to black people. Listen to black women. Listen to transgender people. Yeah, I want to listen to them all. Of course. But I also want to hear what other people have to say. Um, but you are right. I mean, it. it look, it, I, I have this new book called "The Case for um, uh, Colorblind Equality" at. a, age of of identity politics. And I start out with two things, being at Martin Luther King's, I have a dream speech, I was there. And then a few months later, having dinner with Malcolm X um, in Harvard Square. And the difference between the two of them and their two conceptions of racial equality is what has really defined this conflict that we now have. There are still a few who adopt Martin Luther King's view Let's eliminate discrimination and others who accept Malcolm X. No, let's have black pride, and black power and special privileges for black people. So we're never going to resolve that issue. We have to continue to debate it. And then, then how, and how do you explain this?
1: So, so I mean, because I can understand uh, conceptually very well, even if I may not agree with every aspect of it, separating black people off as a special case because of what we have done to them. There's, there's but, but then experience. how do you defend separating Asians from white people? Like, wh- why do they jump the barrier from something that makes sense? into dividing every
3: single other race up. What
1: difference does well, it make?
3: And, it and, and look at what happened with Asian-Americans. It's not It's nothing like slavery. But we brought them to the country to build a railroad. We treated them horribly on the West Coast. We detained 110,000 people in concentration camps. I hate to use that term because they weren't like Nazi concentration camps. They were literally camps that concentrated them. And and we've treated them terribly. And and so they have a gripe. Um, You know, when I was growing up in the 60s, I have to just brag a little bit to make my point. When I went to Yale Law School, I was first in my class. I was editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal. I was a star debater. I was going to be a Supreme Court law clerk and a Harvard professor. And I got turned down by 32 out of 32 Wall Street firms. Every single one of them turned me down. Only one of them gave me an interview. And the interview was given to me by a guy who turned out, I found out 20 years later, was a closet Jew who wanted to meet me because he admired me to tell me that I wouldn't fit in with his law firm. And that's the way it was. We had systemic racism, systemic anti-gay, anti-woman, anti-Jew, anti-ethnic Catholic, Uh, Remember, in the 50s, nobody would dream that a Catholic could run for president. It took, obviously, John Kennedy to break that that barrier. Uh, And you're right. Black uh, African-Americans deserve special consideration because, as Martin Luther King put it, our Constitution was born with a birth defect. The birth defect was slavery. We accepted slavery in the Constitution. There's no denying that. And the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, though it abolished it, It didn't really abolish it. We immediately went to Jim Crow, and we had Jim Crow for nearly 100 years from the time of the end of the Civil War till basically the 1960s. And we're finally going, moving out of it. I don't believe today we are a systemically racist country. I believe today we are systemically anti-racist with pockets of racism that have to be addressed, particularly in law enforcement. But if you look at the laws today, the Supreme Court decisions were systematically anti-racist. We're struggling with racism from the bottom up. It's not the way it was from the top down. And, you know, but there's a big difference between systemic racism of what we had up to the 60s and what we have now. which is something different than that. I I generally agree with you, although I have to tell you that when I heard the full details
1: of what Mayor Bloomberg's uh, stop and frisk policies were, and the way they were pulling over black kids for marijuana charges—they didn't care about. I—I that was one case. I said, "Well, that—that that sounds like systemic racism." You know. I don't but know let me I,
3: tell you. Let me tell you the opposite side of that. So I lived in Boston for many years, obviously, um, and in Boston we there was a terrific problem of crime in the inner city, particularly among young people, gangs, and young people. And a number of the black ministers got together with civil libertarians and with the mayor and said, look, you've got to disarm these gangs. And they went into the neighborhoods and they did stop and frisk. I think they did it better than they did it in New York. They didn't do it on marijuana cases, etc. But they did, and they, they essentially disarmed. Um, uh, and, and it had a substantial, not, you know, not it didn't end the crime, but it had a substantial effect on, on crime. And, um, you know, what's the hardest thing in the world is to balance civil liberties against the need to stop uh, crime. And that's what's going on now with the mayoral race in New York. Um, You know, uh, some people want to defund the police. Some people want to increase funding for the police. Um, I think the mayoral uh, election will be determined a lot by the approach to crime and whether you can balance basic civil liberties with the need to protect innocent civilians from crime. Yeah, going back to my Wizard of
1: Oz thing, I think you're going to find that New York City wants a mayor who's tough on crime, despite what the
3: the loudmouths are saying. I, Look, I agree, agree with you. And, you know, that that's why. Yeah, I, I do think that the former borough president of Brooklyn, who was a former policeman, has the the advantage now because I think he's seen as somebody who can balance civil liberties uh, and 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 also. Uh, being being tough. Also we have to stop bullying cops. Uh, the too many cops have done too many bad things. I agree with that. But take the case, for example of Kim Potter. Here's a woman 27 years on the police force. never done anything wrong as far as we know. Terrible situation. She stops somebody. The guy has a record, gun violence. He's about to get in the car and escape. She grabs what she believes is her taser and she yells, taser, taser, taser. She pulls the trigger and she says, oh, SHI, I shot him. And they're prosecuting her. And they want to prosecute her not only for manslaughter, but for murder. It was a tragic mistake. People make mistakes all the time. And we generally distinguish between honest mistakes and crimes. But yet the crowds are demanding that she be prosecuted for murder. I don't believe that. Well,
1: I, I agree with you. And, and- uh, well, two, two other things I want to ask you about. So get, since we're talking about this and, it, and it, um, it's intertwined with civil liberties, there are so many aspects of this Chauvin case. Oh, yeah. Which you would have thought the ACLU would have been all over. Or the
3: ACLU, what is that?
1: The Anti-Civil Liberties Union? <laughs> <laughs> so and I, I made a quick list I like. That that they didn't allow a venue change, despite the fact that the jurors names would be coming out and and Minnesota was surely going to descend into death, deadly riots. if They They didn't
3: allow sequestration of the jury. Look, the ACLU, I just wrote an article called Requiem for the American Civil Liberties Union. I was on the national board of the ACLU during the golden age of civil liberties when the ACLU defended the free speech of Nazis, the free speech of communists, the free speech of the Klan. Today the ACLU is one of the richest organizations in America. It has it's just rolling in dough as the result of giving up on civil liberties and it's nowhere to be found on college campuses anymore. Thank God there's an organization called FIRE which is defending the rights of young students on college campuses, but they're not in the speech business, they're not in the due process business. They're in the political business. They're just like any other political organization. They pick their cases they prioritize their cases based on politics, not on civil liberties, not on neutral civil liberties. The Chauvin case, look, what Chauvin did is the most horrible thing, unacceptable. There's no justification for it, particularly the last six minutes when obviously he is not resisting and he's dying and guy keeps his knee on his neck. But I don't believe he committed murder. I think he committed manslaughter. And I think that if not for the fear that the jurors had, that there would be riots in the street if they didn't come back with a murder verdict. I don't know. Um, You know, Oliver Wendell Holmes during the Leo Frank case a hundred years ago said, whether a person's guilty or innocent, you can't trust a verdict when the jurors are worried for their own safety if they come up with a verdict other than what the crowds want. And I think that's what's happened in the Chauvin case. And so I think there's a good chance the United States Supreme Court will reverse the Chauvin conviction send it back for a new trial with a sequestered jury, which doesn't get to hear Maxine
0: Waters threaten confrontation unless there's a murder verdict. But isn't the Supreme Court also subject to the same fears? Uh, They don't want to go down in history as the people uh, and they don't want to be reviled. The Supreme Court doesn't uh, for for overturning this verdict. I mean, to what extent is that going to weigh on their decision? Well, it's a
3: year from now, number one. It's Washington, D.C. It's not Minneapolis. And, um, you know, it's a, it's it's now a conservative court. The, isn't it interesting? When I was a law clerk on the Supreme Court, it was the liberals who defended free speech rights and the liberals who defended due process rights. Now it's going to be more likely the conservatives uh, who will say, gee, maybe this wasn't a, a fair trial. Uh, but you're right. I mean, nobody wants to be, the judge that caused a riot in which six people were killed. Nobody wants to be that judge.
1: Dershowitz, I, Professor Dershowitz, I know you probably have to go soon. I'm really.
0: Oh, great. A, so I, by the way, I forgot to mention you also have a show on YouTube called The Dir Show, which yeah, uh, which,
3: but on hiatus now. We're trying to move it to a, a different
0: format.
3: So um, give it another couple of weeks and then tune in to The Dir Show.
0: Yeah, I, but it was, I, it's an excellent show. And, and, and you did a lot of stuff on Chauvin yeah. and stuff on impeachment as well that I watched. And it was very informative. So so that'll be coming back, you said, in a couple of weeks.
1: Yeah. So, by the way, let me just tell the listeners on the on the issue of Chauvin, because it's such a sensitive topic. Nobody here is um, what we're discussing is the are, the are the elements of what it means to have a fair trial. And, and when you and that doesn't matter whether the guy is guilty or innocent. And that's what traditionally with the Civil Liberties Union was all about. It, they, they would happily defend KSM and Abu Jamal and anybody they could find and the Nazis. So don't confuse uh, their concern for the fairness of the
3: Chauvin trial to be some sort of defense of Chauvin. It's
0: not. I don't know, you want want
3: it. It, and I don't think anybody can defend what Chauvin did. I think what he did was just unbelievable. Look, he changed the world. Uh, that that event, those nine minutes had as much of an impact on race relations, civil rights, as anything in in my memory. And uh, it it was a transformative event and largely it was because it was videotaped and and everybody in the world, not only in America, but in the world could see the life being squeezed out of this man by a policeman who obviously was not doing the right thing. So nobody here is defending Chauvin, but the, the hardest cases to have civil liberties are cases where it's so clear that the person is a bad person who did a bad thing, is it
1: worth- yet, who, who would who would want to be on trial for their life and have, know that the juror before he before the trial was wearing a T-shirt about your guilt?
3: Yeah, I, yeah,
0: I, I can't even. I mean, imagine is it is it ever worth sacrificing a civil liberty or two to to prevent complete uh, social chaos?
3: I don't think so. I think that you know once you do that once you know, everybody thinks their case or their era is different. Everybody thinks they, they are living in the most traumatic times. And once you allow an exception, as we did when we detained 110,000 Japanese Americans, it t- set a terrible, terrible precedent. And and I just think we can't have those precedents. Everybody has to have a fair trial. And, and you know, you, you, you can't allow the crowd to dictate justice. Uh, it, it's hard because nobody wants riots. Nobody wants violence. But um, you know, today, the violence would be over the Chauvin case. Tomorrow, it could be over something else. I mean, let's assume it isn't Chauvin. Let's assume it's Kim Potter, who is innocent. I mean, totally innocent. She made a mistake, but she's innocent. Do we want to sacrifice her as well? Because I think there would be violence if she wasn't prosecuted and if she wasn't convicted. All right. And let me just also say, for people who listen to the show, I had problems
1: with the causation part of the case against Chauvin. I, I thought that, that so much contradiction between the experts. I, I, so, but I'm not going to debate that now. I just want the listeners to think I'm chickening out or bringing but that up that, now.
3: that was a close enough question that I think that I would sustain the jury verdict on that, where I think the issue, the major issue in the cases is, is the threats to the jurors and whether they perceive the threats.
0: Noam, Noam, do you want to talk? Uh, I want to ask about Israel. Yeah, I was sure. going to say you have a debate coming up. Well, but I want to. What about Israel? It's trying and to relate it to the comedies. Yeah. So,
1: so, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you still say that you're a Democrat, and um, so I and I I wonder about that. I think about you a lot, Professor Dershowitz, and I want to say, in his heart of hearts, is he still a Democrat? If if this was a young 25 year old Alan Dershowitz with all the same views that he has now, could he possibly embrace the Democratic Party? I don't I don't think he could.
3: I don't know if I can embrace the Democratic Party, but I can certainly embrace Joe Biden. I can certainly embrace Kamala Harris. I can certainly embrace uh, Tony Blinken. I can certainly embrace Janet Yellen. I can certainly embrace the current administration. I am a big fan of Joe Biden. I think he's doing a great job in trying to bring people uh, together. Um, and... Um, But I can't embrace, you know, the squad. I can't embrace um, some of the people who are running now for mayor of New York or for district attorney of New York. I can't embrace my former colleague, Elizabeth Warren. Um, No, but I can't embrace the Republicans either. I believe in a woman's right to choose. I believe in gay marriage. I believe in reasonable gun control. I believe in separation of church and state. I am a traditional liberal. And I'm not ready to say what Ronald Reagan said. He said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. It's possible the Democratic Party will leave me. I'm almost 83 years old, so there's not that much time left for them to leave me. But there's still enough. If they do leave me, I will be very upset. I want to see the Democratic Party join the Republican Party and bipartisan support for Israel. Let's turn to Israel for just one second, because I think Hamas is suckering the world. What they do is about every seven years, they figure out an excuse for firing rockets at Israel. They know that Israel is going to have to respond by firing rockets back. They know that they're firing rockets from UN schools, from hospitals, from mosques. They know that there are going to be some innocent people killed. And they're ready with what they call the CNN strategy or the dead baby strategy. They're willing to sacrifice 200 civilians in order to get the world to turn against Israel. And it's so easy to get the world to turn against Israel. Just fire rockets in Israel, kill on the first or second day, they killed a the six-year-old boy who was in a bunker and the rocket came through the bunker, killed the boy and killed and almost killed his mother. And Israel responds. They take as much care as they possibly can. But inevitably, they're going to kill some innocent civilians because Hamas uses the innocent civilians as shields. This has happened now four times. I've written four books on this subject. And and doesn't the world get it that Hamas just has figured out a way of getting you to the New York Times to put the 60 children on the front page of the newspaper? Well, it turns out that 10 or so of the children were killed by Hamas rockets. Uh, Several others were not 14. They were 18 or 17, and they were Hamas fighters. But you don't need an explanation. You see that picture, and you see dead children, you say, oh my God, how can Israel do that? And it's, it's just a tactic that Hamas has perfected. It's a brilliant tactic, but only dumb people could fall for it, or people who want to fall for it. And I think a lot of people have fallen for this tactic without realizing that the fault lies with Hamas. They commit double war crimes. They fire rockets at Israeli civilians, from behind their own civilians. I wrote a book a few years ago called The Case for Moral Clarity, and the cover was a cartoon. And the cartoon said it all. It was an Israeli soldier standing in front of a baby carriage, protecting the baby. And it was a Hamas soldier standing behind the baby carriage, using the baby carriage to protect him. And that's the difference. That's what's so morally clear, but people
1: won't accept it. But can a party that embraces intersectionality ever be pro-Israel?
3: It doesn't, it doesn't. No, no, of course not. And intersectionality, you know, they say privilege, white privilege. But there's no such thing as Muslim privilege. You know, many of the people in college campuses today are extraordinarily wealthy Muslims who come from Saudi Arabia and other countries. But if you're a Muslim, you get a pass. You're a part of intersectionality. But if you're a Jew, you don't get a pass. You can get a pass if you announce you're a virulent anti-Zionist and you hate, you know, the Jewish influence on politics. Then you can get a pass. But if you are either quiet about Israel or pro-Israel, then you cannot get the support of the intersectionality people. And I saw a little
1: parallel as kind of a dead giveaway. All the attention to this AP building being blown up. Yeah. From the same people who during the BLM riots, while innocent people were having their businesses destroyed, were saying, it's just property. Destruction of property is not violence. They're insured. All the the dismissals of the lives ruined during the
3: looting. But the AP building, this is serious, right? Yeah, it's such hypocrisy. First of all, we now know from 2016, we now know that people from the AP knew that there were Hamas um, uh, uh, headquarters there, number one. Uh, Number two, you know, The people from AP got out of the building and said, we're lucky we weren't killed. They weren't lucky. They were warned. (laughs) They were warned. They got phone calls saying you have an hour to leave the building. And the building was blown up. Big deal. Now Israel has offered to rebuild the AP part of the building, which I don't think they should do, but they they are prepared to do it. You're absolutely right. Why suddenly the socialists and left-wingers care so much about, about business buildings? People didn't live there. These were, you know, these were office buildings and uh, the same people who want to destroy police stations and, and businesses, even black businesses. There's such hypocrisy. Yeah. I mean, this is the first time in
1: my life, my whole life, I've said this before, my whole life, I always followed politics very closely, but it was mostly, mostly entertainment. I never really felt that anything that I was following or any decision that was made was really going to affect me that much they raised my taxes lower my taxes whatever but it didn't re- but in the last few years starting with the louis thing then with the rioting that was going on in new york city where it was pretty clear the police had been told to stand down and that if and that if i lost everything you know that it would be dismissed as a white person's complaint um m- most recently and i'm not crying poverty i'll be fine even if i don't get the money but there is a government program to help the restaurants get out from under all the bills that we've incurred in the last couple. Right. And I can't get that money. I may never get it because it, the business is owned by a white male and the, prog- the program will probably be out of money by the time it gets to white males. Now, the irony is that my wife is a person of color. And it was just in her name. I'd you know I'd have the cash by now. But the idea, idea that, the idea that all of a sudden, like if if there's a hurricane on my street and my house is destroyed and my black neighbor's house is destroyed, that this this bears on who gets uh, money. This is a this is a huge. It's a sea change. It's a huge change.
3: And, and it's it, wrong. Yeah. Way, wrong in New Orleans when there wasn't enough attention played to the losses in the black community. Right. That was wrong too. Uh, you know we have to ultimately the goal has to be to become colorblind. The goal has to be Martin Luther King's dream. The goal has to be total and complete equality, not in quality of outcome but equality of opportunity. but we're moving away from that. And I do,
0: do, do you see a realistic way to get there? or is it just beyond the human capacity? You know certain things we just maybe can't do as as, as human beings. I mean, maybe it's beyond our, um, nature to be completely in, colorblind. In
3: 1922, the most prominent Jewish professor at Harvard was a man named Louis Wolfson. And he wrote an article in which he said, Being born Jewish is like being born blind, deaf, or with a hunchback. There's nothing you can do about it. Don't try to fight it. It's inevitable, it's inherent. If you're a Jew, you will never have equality, you will never have the opportunities that Gentiles have. He wrote that in 1922. I met him in 1964 when I first came to Harvard. And I said to him, that article had a big impact on me. I just rejected out of hand. And he said, well, you're a naive young man. You will learn the truth soon. But we overcame that. Um, You know, When I saw Jackie Robinson come to bat, I was nine years old, in 1947, my first instinct was if Jackie Robinson can play second base for the Brooklyn Dodgers, I can do anything. And we have to instill that attitude back to Americans. Uh, You know, we are the land of opportunity. And I was privileged to teach some of the most unbelievable uh, young African-Americans, men and women, who came up out of nowhere and are now judges and prominent professors. Uh, uh, We shouldn't knock the concept of opportunity. It's not going to work for everybody, but we can do a lot better. I mean, I'm, I'm
1: such a patriotic American and I love my country so much. And I love the ideal that honestly, if I thought it would work, I would accept the expediency over principle and I would let them treat me as a white. I, I mean, it, it's really not about me. I'm very fortunate. I'll be fine either way. But it's going to tear the country apart, in my opinion. And when you, I mean, you have small businesses, mom and pops. And if they want to organize, let's say, against the way this program is being administered, Are they going to organize as white businesses now? Is that what we're going
3: to force people to do? That's dangerous as hell. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Look, as you said, there are differences. Institutionally, our constitution was based on a birth defect, and we are never going to get over that. And we do have to recognize that in everything we do. But there comes a time when the case for uh, colorblind equality um, is, is going to be here. Justice O'Connor said some years ago that affirmative action based on race should last 25 years, but ultimately it has to end and everybody has to be treated equally. Maybe it'll take more than 25 years, but that can't be the goal. The goal can't be identity politics, that we we treat everybody differently based on their race, their gender, their identity, their sexual identity. The goal has to be that we treat everybody the same. We, We have to start by
1: imagining what we want to look like as a eventually healthy society. Does that mm-hmm. mean that people of this color can never make food of that person's color and people of this color can never dress up as their heroes of the other color? That's not what we want. We, we, we want to imagine being beyond that. And if we want to be beyond that, we have to work to be beyond that. Instead, we're look, working to prevent being beyond that.
3: When the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments were passed, if anybody in Congress had said, oh, by the way, this may be interpreted someday to allow a white man and a black woman to marry, it would have been defeated unanimously. There wasn't a single person in Congress who would have accepted into marriage based on on, on, on race. Today, it's a non-issue. We are a different country. We are a better country, and we can get better and better and better. But the idea of reimposing racial segregation and hierarchies and substituting one hierarchy for another hierarchy is the road to hell
1: yeah yeah i mean i would have said many many times on this show in, in relation to this whole uh, asians in the ivy league if harvard was 70 percent asian nothing would make me more proud of my country of course i mean i mean we, we don't care
3: anyway Look, so ben, that's exactly right and uh, MIT is and some other schools uh, are very substantially uh, Asian American. Look, people work hard. People come up from where they were born and accomplish something. We have to give them credit for it. Absolutely.
1: All right, Professor Dershowitz. Uh, Dan,
3: do you have any final
1: questions? Well, I just, I just,
0: I just wanted to say, is this debate? Uh, being scheduled? Has it been scheduled? So our, our mutual friend
1: Stephen Calabria is trying to get it off the ground. Go ahead. And this would
0: be a debate on what was the, the debate topic was Israel? Israel I health. think um, some, some aspect of Hamas,
3: Israel. Um, I think it'd be interesting. I, I love the debate I had there uh, last time. And um, it, was just, it was just a lot of fun. The you idea of a serious yeah. subject, but know that you can occasionally intrude some humor into it is,
1: is a very healthy thing. I, I would you, like you to... had
0: a debate. Uh, Megan Kelly was the moderator, I believe. No, not Megan Kelly. Was it Megan Kelly? The... I Ari- no,
3: no. had a debate on Israel with Megan Kelly being the moderator.
0: Oh, really? I wasn't there.
3: No, it wasn't at the comedy. Oh, I, I misheard you. I it was me. on her podcast.
1: Ah. Oh, so yeah, ben. I heard that. That was great.
3: Yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah, I said that's a lot of people. She did quite a good job, I thought. Yeah. Well, she's terrific. She is terrific. She's a terrific moderator. She's very balanced. She's very smart. And uh, she's a lawyer, too. I, I would
1: like to break the debate down. We'll talk about it, obviously, all the air, but I would like to break the, the debate down, if everybody's agreeable, into like four or five questions, a la the, the way you you've broken your book down, uh, The Case <laughs> for Israel, because um, I, I think it would be nice to have really pointed answers to these. Like, are the settlements illegal and the various questions great. which on.
3: great, great. Um, Okay, do it. Hey, keep making people laugh and keep making people think. And I have to tell you, one of the best ways to get people to think is to make them laugh.
1: Yes, that's true. I I, can ask you one more question, by the way, because I I once had a harebrained idea, but I want to know how far you take this free speech thing. I got shot down and I dropped it. But when we, we first started doing debates, it was a little bit before wokeness had really clouded up the entire sky. And I wanted to do a Holocaust denial debate. I, w- I wanted to, you know, lift up the rock and actually have a debate about whether the Holocaust happened or not, I thought, as a way to air this out and, and to, to sh- so that people wouldn't suspect stuff. And everybody told me that was a terrible idea. What so here's
3: mean? my response to that. I think there should be a debate. Did the Holocaust occur? But it should be part of a four-part debate. One, is the earth flat? Two... <laughs> Is John F. Kennedy still alive and living in Hyannis? And uh, figure out the third one. Well, is but,
1: Paul McCartney dead?
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, if, if you want to have it as part of a debate like that, fine. But the idea that anybody could give any credibility, I mean, there would just be. Um, but but I wouldn't ban it. I wouldn't ban Holocaust denial. I, I when Holocaust denial has come to campuses, I use it as an opportunity to educate. Because remember, 90% of the students don't know anything about the Holocaust. And if somebody comes and says it didn't occur, then they have to focus on it a little bit. And we know what the outcome of the debate is going to be. Obviously, we have all the evidences there. There are no survivors left. They're almost all now uh, dying. But we have all the evidence of every possible, mostly admissions by the Nazis who ran it uh, uh, during the Nuremberg trials and in other, other other venues and contexts. So I'm not afraid of debating anything. I think it would be good. People hear all these things like, you know,
1: the, the, the ovens couldn't have possibly, or the gas chambers couldn't have possibly generated that much uh, gas to kill that number of people. And they hear these things and they never actually hear the response. And truthfully, I don't know the response. I know there is a
3: response. Well, i And you know, one of the villains of this piece is Pat Buchanan. Yes. Pennant has toyed around with Holocaust denial. Once when there was a train that was stuck in Washington, D.C., and nobody was killed, he said that proved basically that the Zycon X couldn't do it. And so I challenged him. I said, why don't you go into a little chamber? I'll put some Zykon X in. If you emerge healthy, you win the debate. But if they carry you out, I win the debate. now he didn't take me up on it.
1: Well, I know you have to go. But the other thing that I do want to talk about at some point is I'm so disappointed in our senator from New York, Charles Schumer, who did not say a word about Hamas during this entire thing. If if there's any better indication of what the reality of the Democratic Party is today, I can't think of one.
3: And he won't say a word about the squad. I mean, he calls himself Schumer, Schumer, the guardian of Israel. It's so easy to make those kinds of statements. But uh, I'm very disappointed. Uh, by him as well. New York has not been well-served by its two uh, Democratic senators, not well-served at all.
1: Yeah. All right, Professor Dershowitz, I look forward to seeing you at the debate. We're going to try to do it as quickly as possible. Um, and, will it be uh, catered
0: by Il Molino? If, oh, boy. wow. Okay, you if, got no, me. I'm, I'm saying will it be. I don't know if it will uh, be. Okay. If that's <laughs> what Professor Dershowitz likes, that's what he shall have.
3: Love that,
1: of course. Um, Good, well, it's been a pleasure. And uh, that's it. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Professor Dorsey. we see you soon.